In our world, kindness is often overlooked. Kindness is a trait that often goes unnoticed and usually goes uncelebrated. Kindness is not something that we typically look for in our political leaders, though maybe we should. Kindness is one of those things that we notice and unfortunately often forget about fairly quickly. The kindness of King Jesus comes in many ways. The last few weeks we've been looking at the kingship of Christ. We saw how in his authority he called followers to himself to give up everything and follow him. We saw in his authority the preaching of a king preaching about his kingdom. We saw in his authority the king cast out a demon and today we're going to be looking at the kindness of the king. And I'll just say really quickly right now that is a kindness that praise God extends to people like you and I. We're in Mark chapter 1 verse 29 through 34. Again this is Mark chapter 1 verses 29 through 34. It says, immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, I want to start off by saying I love this passage because it demonstrates the simplicity of the kindness of the work of Jesus in the lives of those that he loved and still loves. Sometimes we have a tendency to overcomplicate things, but Jesus really didn't. He did what only he could do. We see that in our passage in three ways. We see his kindness work out in this passage in three ways. The first is as he pushes back the darkness from his people's lives. The second act of kindness is to restore men and women to their rightful place as his people. And the third act of kindness is approaching all of this work and every part of who he is on his own terms and not on someone or anyone else's terms. Now we're going to look at each one of these acts of kindness as we move forward. The first, as I mentioned, is the kindness of pushing back the darkness. So let us consider this passage as a whole. We see clearly two things, two actions of the Lord in this moment. The first is healing, the healing of an individual. And we've all been in a place like this where someone that we loved and someone that we cared about or maybe ourselves was in a place of illness and sickness, of suffering in some way. Peter, 
Simon's mother is, or mother-in-law is sick. She has a fever, and it's likely pretty severe as even as people arrive at the home she lives in, she continues to lay down. She doesn't get up. She doesn't go serve them. She doesn't go out of their way. Instead, Jesus finds out through Simon and the others that she's sick. The second thing we see in our passage is the healing and freeing of people from demonic possession. It tells us in verse 32 that after sundown, after the Sabbath sun had set, that is, the community brings to him everyone who was sick or oppressed by demons. And now a quick note, they wait till after the sun goes down because it's no longer the Sabbath. And they thought, they believed, they understood that they weren't allowed to bring someone to a healer on the Sabbath, so they had to wait. Let me tell you really quickly, friends, there is no reason to wait. There is never a reason to wait to bring someone to Jesus. He is ready to receive them at any moment, and he even demonstrates that in healing Simon's mother-in-law on the Sabbath. We're told in verse 34 that it is many who were sick, many who had demons, many are brought, many are healed, and many are freed. Amen? This is the kindness of the Lord. The Lord looks at the need, which is certainly great. The Lord looks at the need of Simon's mother-in-law, the the family need, the immediate, the, the named need, the people that we care about, and he acts. He also looks in kindness upon the crowd, which also is in need, those who would bring their loved ones to him. Those who are just discovering that he has the power and the desire to bring healing to people's lives. What they do is bring him all who are full of illness, and we know that illness ultimately leads to death, and all those who are demon-possessed, influenced by the demonic. And Jesus responds because he's kind. He sees the great need. And I would remind us of the great need. Most of us don't need much reminder of the brokenness that is in this world. The news this week reveals new and more increased war in Jerusalem, in Israel. We don't have to go far in our own lives to to discover the pain, the influence of evil all around us, whether that's evil we might do in sin or evil that might be done to us. Jesus heals. Jesus frees people from the demonic influence. And in doing so, he is demonstrating his power and his purpose as the king, pushing back the darkness. John 1, chapter, or John chapter 1, verses 4 through 5 tells us this, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And what Jesus is doing in kindness and love in his mercy towards these people is pushing back 
the darkness. He is pushing back on the evil all around him. He is establishing a kingdom that would put a barrier up between his people and the darkness of this world. This is his work. This is what he came to do. He is in the business of pushing back the darkness. Each of us, some of us are still in, but each of us has been in the darkness. And what you need to know today as we look at Jesus and his kindness is that he can push that back. There is no evil in this world that he cannot push back. There is no suffering in this world that he cannot respond to. He is active. He is working. This is what he did in his kindness. And church, this is what he continues to do in his kindness. I have a good friend who is a, a pastor. He came to Christ when he was in his early 20s while in college. And for 30 years, his dad made fun of him for it. For 30 years, his dad would, would tell him that he was weak that there was no need for a savior, and it was pretty ugly. And my friend would tell him about Jesus and share the gospel with him, and he didn't want to hear any of it. About four years ago, my friend got a call from hospice. His dad was in the final hours of life, so he boarded a plane, and he went to go visit with his dad. And when he got to his dad, he talked with him and spoke with him, and he shared the parable of the workers who all received the same wage despite the fact that they all showed up at different times. And he shared with his dad that even though he had not been a part of the kingdom for his whole life, even at the final moments, he could have the full reward in heaven. In that moment, his dad accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. And as my friend boarded a plane to head back home, his dad spent the last few hours of his life praying for, by name, every grandchild, every other family member, and every friend that he had ever had who didn't love Jesus. That they too might discover the grace he discovered only in the end. Church, we worship a king whose business it is, is to push back the darkness. He's still doing it. He's still doing it. That's the first act of kindness that we see in our passage here. The second act of kindness is the restoring of broken people into the capable men and women we were made to be. He restores broken people into what we were made to be. This is, I think, one of the more striking things in this passage as it comes across my own heart, maybe for you as well. In verse 30, it tells us, Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Now, I just need to say I love the kindness of Christ in reaching out to someone and in drawing them up, right? This is his work in her life. The stunning thing that happens is that in that moment she is healed, she immediately begins to serve. 
Now, we don't know how bad her condition was in the first place, though Luke, in his gospel, tells us that her fever is very high. The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 4.15 that Luke was a doctor. So you might imagine that Luke is more interested in the details of someone's illness, especially as then Jesus comes in and instantly heals it. Maybe she was in the final moments where her fever would take her. Maybe she was going to be sick for another few weeks. Maybe she would recover on her own. But what we know in that moment, no matter how bad her illness was, in that moment she is instantly restored. Now a couple things happen here. The first, and I want you to hear this, the first thing that happens to her is that she goes from incapable to capable. I have to believe, I think we should believe that that if she could have been serving in her illness, she would have been. Because as soon as her illness is healed, she is serving. This seems to be who she wanted to be and what she was made to do, what she loved to do, I would imagine. But she was incapable of it. She couldn't do it. Her situation sick in bed is, I cannot. Her situation after being healed is, I can. And I want us to hear this because this is the same thing that happens to every one of us. As the kindness of Christ washes over us, makes us new, brings us to new life. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, is there a better image of someone who can't? Than the dead? But we're told in verse 4 later on, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We go from a state of I can't to I can. Because Christ takes us from a place of I'm dead to now I'm alive. She was perhaps on her deathbed, but is now alive. What happens to her in this moment is the same thing. It's a picture of the gospel that happens in every one of us. We go from I can't to I can. He restores in us the ability to worship him, to love him, and of course, to serve him. Amen? The second thing that happens in our passage is that she begins to fulfill her role. Her role as hostess in a culture where hospitality mattered. Now there are those in our modern world that would highly criticize this and any emphasis of it. They would suggest that perhaps she had been sick and now she should be taken care of by the men around her. Rather than serving those around her that criticism would miss the simple fact that it would appear she wants to do this. That she knows in her restored state that this is who she is. That she wants to serve not only Jesus, but the text tells us she serves him and those who are with him. The reality is that Jesus leaves room in other places 
particularly for a woman to sit at his feet and learn. Think about the story of Mary and Martha. And while he vagues or, or offers a mild criticism of Martha for not choosing the better thing, she's still serving the Lord in that passage. Add to the detail the fact that this isn't even her house. It's her daughter's house. And her da- son-in-law's house, she wouldn't be the primary hostess anyway. It wouldn't be expected that this would be her job. And yet, what does she do? She picks up the serving wherever it had been left off, wherever was in need. I just find it so striking that Jesus heals her. And immediately, what is she doing? She's serving. Immediately, she's serving. And that's the third thing that we see. Immediately, she serves Jesus and his followers and before we you know move and and say hey this is just because she's a woman let me remind you that this is the role of all followers of Jesus humble service is the role of all disciples all whom Jesus calls all whom he restores to be restored by Christ is to be restored into our proper and right place as servants of the living God Mark chapter 10, verse 42 through 44, right after a disagreement with the disciples about who is best and better and who should be in charge, Jesus says to them this. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. I'm going to say that one more time. It shall not be so among you. This is what he's saying to his church. You who would be in charge, you who would lead, you who would set the example, it is not about lording, it is about serving. I speak to no one more loudly right now than I speak to the guy standing right here. Because that is what we've all been called to, Jesus says this, moving on, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you, you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus restores us into service. Jesus restores us in service to service. Sinclair Ferguson wrote this. He's a commentator. He said, think of what happened to Peter's mother-in-law. She was sick and debilitated. Her life, however momentarily, had become useless. What Jesus did was to restore her to what she was meant to be, a whole and healthy woman. That's restored. She serves Jesus and his disciples. Jesus restored God's order and purpose to her life. In doing so, he gave his disciples a miniature reproduction of the exercise of his kingly rule. He's the king, and we have the pleasure and the joy of being his servants. That is the restored relationship we have with him. And we don't see this only in Peter's mother-in-law, but we also actually see it 
As the crowds of people from this region bring their family and friends to him for healing. They don't even know who he is yet, most of them. They've just discovered that he has the kindness and the ability to do something about their debilitating illnesses and diseases, to do something about the demons that are living inside of them. And so what do they do as they begin to discover who he is? They bring everybody they know to him. And the crowds are gathering. This is what happens when Jesus' kindness shows up in the hearts and the lives and the minds of his people. Because he restores us. He restores us. A question for you. When you think about salvation, who benefits from your salvation? Jesus restores this woman. He heals her, and in an instant, she's serving the people who are in the home. Christian, who receives the benefit of your salvation? I mean, you do. Don't get me wrong. We, we all should receive the benefit of our salvation, the joy that comes along with it, the transformed life. I mean, I can't, I can't, don't, we don't have time to go into all the personal benefits. But, but let me ask you this. Who receives, who else receives the benefit of your salvation? Who else receives the benefit of your salvation? As he calls us, he calls us into a restored relationship as servants. Amen? To serve him, to serve one another. This is his kindness. It, it pushes back the darkness and his kindness restores us. The third act of kindness in our passage is doing all of this on his own terms. It's doing all of this on his own terms. I told you last week we were going to get to this verse. The end of verse 34. He's just healed, cast out many demons. At the end of this verse it says, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, this is perhaps one of the most argued about, debated about, discussed verses in all of the book of Mark. There are entire books written on this one verse and the verses that would go alongside it in the rest of the book of Mark. Essentially, what you see in the book of Mark constantly, we saw it last week as Jesus healed the demon, and that demon started proclaiming who he was. And Jesus muzzled him, told him to be silent, and then cast that demon out. Now we find out that as he casts out these demons, they're probably declaring the same thing. He would not permit them to speak. Interestingly enough, this happens in other times. Jesus heals people and he says to them, hey, I've just healed you. Don't tell anyone. Now, in almost every one of those cases, those people immediately go out and tell everybody. Because honestly, who of us wouldn't? There is in the book of Mark particularly, but you see it across some of the other Gospels, something that is called the Messianic secret, and it bothers people. It bothers people because we think, well, why wouldn't Jesus want everybody to know who he is? And amen, in our day, that's absolutely true. It should bother us when any of us are silent about who Jesus was and still is. But at the time, there was really good reason for this. And as I said, I think it ties to the kindness of Christ. His 
kindness for us. See, Jesus is battling two very specific things in this. The first thing he's battling is a nationalistic expectation that when the Messiah shows up, he's going to defeat Rome. See, what had happened by this time in history is that all of the ex-Jewish expectations for who the Messiah would be had him riding into Jerusalem on a white horse with a sword in his hand, ready to defeat the physical, human, earthly enemies of the nation. But that's not who he was. That's not what he came to do. And so the trouble is, as demons are proclaiming, hey, here's the Messiah. There's people in the crowd who are starting to think, oh, our freedom day is on its way. Right? And there are those who would join with him and want to join with him who would want to fight. That's the first battle he's facing. I want to come back to that battle in just a minute because I think it, it really ties to what we see. The second battle that I think he's facing in this and that's generally talked about is the fact that every one of these demons has an ulterior motive for proclaiming it. Right? They're not his friends. They're not his allies. They're saying what they're saying for a reason that would be entirely other to his purpose. See, what Jesus is doing is he's making sure as people learn about him, as people discover him, they are doing so on his own terms. And not the terms of a demon or somebody else who might have another purpose for proclaiming who he is. At this time in history, the enemy, Satan, had done an amazing thing politically and religiously. Because the Jews were so desperate for an earthly rescue, all their hopes and expectations were for a Messiah who would conquer. Satan had twisted heavenly hopes into earthly desires. He had caused them to exchange heavenly glory for earthly pride. And friends, I just need to say that I think this is still one of the lies the devil uses. It's still one of the distractions that the devil's always throwing at the church. That we would look to Jesus politically before we'd ever look to Jesus with our hearts. What happens is anytime, and I don't care where you sit on the aisle, you claim Jesus for political gain, you fall into this. And so do I. I'm not going to cast any stones in a glass house without worrying about my own walls. But church, what we need to see is in his kindness, he came to us on his terms, not ours. He came to us on his terms, not Satan's. And so the messianic secret is all about the kindness of Christ to make sure that as people meet him, they really meet him. They really know him. They really know what he's all about. He wants people to know him. There's no messianic secret. He's the Messiah. 
and he wants people to know. He wants them to know what he really came for. And this is the kindness of Christ, that he came on his own terms, that he came in his own way, his own mercy. And what he does is meet us in our need, not our wants. Because every one of those Jewish people who would have him riding on a white horse knew what they wanted, but none of them knew what they needed. They needed a savior who would die for them, not a conqueror who would kill for them. Amen? It is the loving kindness of Christ that he would come to us on his terms and not our own. It is the loving kindness of Christ that he continues to do so. That he continues to meet with us in our need and not our wants. That he continues to come to us and speak to us, pushing back the darkness, restoring broken people like you and I into being his servants. And so church, we see the loving kindness of Christ all over this passage. Hear this, the loving kindness of the king. That's a king I want to follow. So church today, let us receive from him his loving kindness as he pushes back the darkness in our lives and the world, as he restores us to who and what we were made to be, and he comes on his terms into our lives and not our own. And let us worship as we finish our time in the Lord's Supper and our final song on the kindness of Christ. Amen? Lord God, we just come before you and we thank you for your goodness, your mercy, and of course, your kindness. Lord, we're told in your word that it's actually your kindness that saves us. And God, I pray that everyone in this room right now would be saved. I don't know, Lord, that everyone in this room came in that way, but I pray, God, that if there's anyone who has found themselves in the brokenness and not being restored, Lord, that you would come to them. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would move in them and they might respond to the gospel today, that they might say yes to you and to what you're doing in their hearts, their lives, their minds. I thank you, God, for the work that you've done here. For, Lord, the kindness that would bring us together and gather us together, Lord, that we might study you, your word. I pray, God, that you would open our hearts and our minds, Lord, for you are good. And your mercy endures forever. Amen.